0: This is the Champlain Society podcast, Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. It is my great pleasure to interview Maureen Lux. She joins me from her office in the Department of History at Brock University to talk about the history of a segregated system of Indian hospitals that existed in Canada through much of the 20th century. Her book is entitled Separate Beds, a History of Indian Hospitals in Canada 1920s to 1980s It has received considerable attention and was awarded the Canadian Historical Association's Aboriginal History Prize and the Royal Society of Canada's Jason A. Hanna Medal for a significant contribution to the history of medicine in Canada Her first book Medicine that Walks Disease Medicine and the Canadian Plains Native People, 1880 to 1940, received similar attention when it was released in 2001. Maureen, welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history.
1: Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: Well, it's great to have you with us. Now, this interview is being recorded on February 2, 2018. Just three days ago, a $1.1 billion class action lawsuit was filed on behalf of Indian hospital patients. The lawsuit focuses on the alleged, and I quote from the report, horrific treatment of at 29 of these segregated hospitals across Canada. In the CBC report that I read, Anne Hardy, who was a representative indigenous plaintiff, alleged that she and other patients were the victims of regular sexual abuse, and that she encountered it during her monthly x-ray sessions at the Charles Campson Indian Hospital in Edmonton. Maureen, I think it would be hard to have picked uh, the timing of the interview any better. Is this lawsuits and, and all the stories that are coming out of it going to be the legacy of Indian hospitals?
1: Well, Greg, that's a that's a big question. I think the legacy of Indian hospitals is already played out in, in many Indigenous communities. But we can maybe talk about the, the more systemic nature of abuse that happened in Indian hospitals
0: Yeah, for sure. Maybe just make this part of a nutshell history of segregated hospitals, uh, because most of us really have no idea that these kinds of hospitals even existed in this country.
1: Yeah, Indian hospitals, and, and I'll use that term throughout, because it reflects the historical usage and the particular character of these racially segregated institutions, Indian hospitals were established in the 1930s and 1940s in reaction to an increasingly shrill medical and bureaucratic discourse that characterized Indigenous people as a disease threat to the Canadian public. An earlier discourse, medical discourse, had suggested that Indigenous people were, and I quote here, a dying race. Uh, It was a self-serving kind of discourse that not only justified limited medical services, but also rationalized the tragic population losses in the early years of the 20th century that came as a result of repressive government policies. But by the 1930s and 1940s, Indigenous populations were actually increasing, and Indigenous people were increasingly seen in towns and cities in Canada. So the Canadian Tuberculosis Association, which represented provincial sanatorium directors and provincial health officials, were anxious to have federal government provide health care for Indigenous people, especially for what they termed at the time Indian tuberculosis. And this cast Indigenous people as, as a disease threat to provincial citizens. And of course, at the time, most provincial tuberculosis sanatoria would not admit Indigenous patients. So in the 1930s, the government's Indian Health Service reluctantly established two Indian hospitals, one at Dinaver outside of Winnipeg and another at Fort Qu'Appelle in southern Saskatchewan. And what they found there was that they could operate these institutions at half the cost of community hospitals. And how those savings were made is, of course, left to the imagination. In any case, This cost-saving, more than anything, recommended the expansion of Indian hospitals in the post-World War II period.
0: Well, you said it could be left to imagination, but uh, you must have found some historical evidence of why these were so much less expensive to operate.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it had to do with uh, paying low wages, providing kind of inadequate food, uh, overcrowding. You know, there was all the the whole suite of of, uh, services that weren't, there. right. Um, But I think it's important to note that although the Indian hospitals were initially rationalized to treat tuberculosis, they actually operated as general hospitals. So they admitted maternity, pediatric, as well as tuberculosis in the same institution. And that generally was not the practice at the time. Um, That's why there were tuberculosis sanatoriums. So Cross infection was a constant reality in these hospitals.
0: Right. So, how many of these hospitals were established from that time to, uh, and and when were when were the last ones uh, built?
1: By my count, uh, Indian Health Service, which was a a branch of the Department of National Health and Welfare, owned twenty-two Indian hospitals in Canada, and most were established from Ontario and west. Um, I know that others uh, count more Indian hospitals, and what they're doing there is counting um, tuberculosis sanatoria that after the 1960s had pretty much emptied out of non-Indigenous patients, and so they began admitting uh, Indigenous patients. But Institutions that were owned by the federal government, by my count, there were about 22 of them by the 1960s.
0: Why didn't the federal government just let the uh, provincial governments deal with the issue through uh, provincial hospitals, private or provincially owned hospitals?
1: Community hospitals in the West, in particular, were not welcoming for indigenous patients. And the federal government, for its part, would never pay community hospitals the full charge for care for Indigenous patients. It argued that the federal government would always pay its bills eventually, and so that they should get some kind of a discount for treatment for Indigenous people. Of course, community hospitals resented the policy and felt justified in um, establishing what they called Indian wings, basement wards, or denying care altogether.
0: So, in effect, you had uh, segregation even at the uh, provincial level and then segregation at the federal level through this separate group of hospitals. Now, what about Indian Health Services and that bureaucracy's management of these hospitals? How was that done and how effective or ineffective was the federal government through Indian Health Services in managing these hospitals as well as an associated Indian nursing service?
1: Well, Indian Health Services uh, was established under the Department of Indian Affairs. And in 1945, when the new bureaucracy, the Department of National Health and Welfare, was established, Indian Health Services became a branch of that larger bureaucracy. And Indian Health Services, I mean, that that bureaucracy was renamed a few times since it became Medical Services Branch and then the First Nations and Inuit Health branch. But it's essentially the same bureaucracy.
0: Right, and, I, and today it's being moved to another, yet another, or being a new department being created, and it's being taken out of uh, Health Canada. Yeah, that's right. Now, how would you compare the way in which Indian Health Services ran it when they were in uh, their Department of Indian Affairs versus the way that National health and welfare ran those hospitals. Was there a distinct difference or was it largely still the same?
1: Yeah, Greg, I think it was pretty much the same because they were the same physician bureaucrats that ran the hospitals. A surprisingly small number of of white men um, established this bureaucracy and and ran it for the most part for the next uh, 40 years. But when Indian Health Services was transferred to the Department of Health and welfare. It was at a time, uh, you know, 1945, when Canada was consciously uh, trying to define something they called the national health. So when the Mackenzie King Liberals backed away from their wartime promises of universal health insurance, it instead established the national health grant. So starting in 1948, the grants matched provincial funds for hospital construction, among other health projects. So in those first five years, Canada added 46,000 new hospital beds. They added 30 new hospitals per year for a decade. At the same time, that same bureaucracy operated the Indian hospitals at half the cost of community hospitals. And in several communities, the Indian and local hospitals were literally side by side so indian hospitals reflected and and constructed racial inequality by making it seem natural that modernizing hospitals would be white hospitals
0: right and then and then the federal government gets involved with the introduction finally in the late 1950s after that uh, earlier decision not to go ahead with the introduction of universal hospital coverage to share costs, the financing of that coverage with the provinces uh, in the late 1950s. Did that change the federal government's policy to Indian hospitals, or did that come later?
1: I think it's important to understand that Indian hospitals from the outset were designed to isolate and segregate Indigenous patients. And they operated in a way that ensured that Indian hospitals would never draw personnel or any other resources away from this larger project of modernizing provincial hospitals. And the National Health Grant's hospital construction provided unprecedented opportunities for physicians and nurses, which, of course, you know leads to escalating costs, which ultimately lead, leads to hospital insurance. But very few physicians and nurses chose to work for civil service wages in per, poorly equipped and off, often isolated Indian hospitals. And some of the, the outcome of, of those kinds of, of decisions had real consequences for patients in the hospital. For instance, at the North Battleford Indian Hospital in 1955, a four-month-old infant was admitted with what they termed severe bronchopneumonia, but whose condition, according to the physician at the time, said was fairly good. He was found dead in his crib the next morning. With one registered nurse and one aide on a ward of 14 seriously ill infants, there was just neither the time nor the hands to care adequately for the patient. And, you know, at the time, accepted nursing standards was five hours of nursing per day per seriously ill infant. And with the hospital staffing levels, the hospital could only provide two hours of care. So the consequences of these larger policy and funding decisions, plus the broader dominant project of modernizing Canada's hospital infrastructure, had very real consequences for patients in these Indian hospitals.
0: And you've touched on it already, but just describe, based upon what you found in terms of both the stories, the historical evidence, the actual treatment received by Indigenous patients in these hospitals on average, not the worst treatment necessarily, not the best treatment, but on average, what would they receive and how did it compare to what a non-Indigenous patients received in other hospitals?
1: Well, I, I don't think we can separate the, the the kind of structure of the hospitals, and the bureaucratic structure from the, the treatment that was um, mm-hmm. experienced by patients. For instance, Indian Health Services often attracted medical staff who couldn't get work elsewhere, especially physicians who couldn't Mm -hmm. manage a private practice. Uh, One other example, at the Lady Willingdon Hospital on Six Nations Reserve in southern Ontario in 1954, a woman died during what was minor surgery. Now, the surgeon at the time, he was also the superintendent of this Indian hospital and the the records that are found in the archive have him reporting to his superiors that the woman's death was the result of an unqualified anesth. The local coroner worked with the superintendent and surgeon to keep the circumstances of her death from becoming public. And the surgeon pointed out uh, to his superiors that Indian Health Service attracted medical personnel who had been failures elsewhere. In the wake of her death, the unqualified anesthetist remained at the hospital. Well, the surgeon was promoted to headquarters in Ottawa.
0: So, is it fair to say that basically in these Indian hospitals you had substandard care provided by substandard providers and at times unqualified clinicians? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, th- that's very much the case. And more than that, um, you know, given that Indian Health Service mandate was to protect the national health. Coercion characterized its, its operation uh, at the, from the, the outset. Um,
0: Can you describe that?
1: Yeah, from the outset, Percy Moore, he, he was a physician. Um, he was director of Indian Health Services from 1944 until his retirement in 1965. And as he put it bluntly, quote, we certainly do not feel that our program should be left to the whims of an Indian as to whether or not he will accept treatment. So Moore had the Indian Act amended in 1953 to include what were called the Indian Health Regulations, which essentially criminalized ill health. The regulations authorized compulsory medical examination and treatment. It authorized the arrest and detention for somebody who refused examination and treatment. And it also authorized the forced return of patients to hospital. And in the archival record, there's Descriptions of patients being returned to hospital by the RCMP in chains. And that coercion continued within the hospitals. Patients, usually children, but not always, were restrained by being tied to their beds. At Charles Camsell Indian Hospital in Edmonton, staff jo- jokingly referred to a condition they called castitis, where children were fitted with uh, plaster casts on both legs with a bar connecting them so that they couldn't move. Adult men, for instance, had their pajama bottoms taken away so they, they couldn't get out of bed.
0: Hmm. So how and why were Indian hospitals disestablished?
1: With national hospital insurance in 1957, and then, of course, health insurance or, or Medicare uh, subsequently, the definitions of national health had again shifted. So the Indian Health Service hoped to close Indian hospitals and invest in community hospitals to expand to make room for Indigenous patients. And this fit nicely with the government's broader assimilationist policy, where First Nations would shed their cultural, uh, linguistic, and political difference and melt into the larger fabric of society. And the federal government was anxious to shed all sorts of responsibilities for Indigenous people to provincial governments.
0: Right, and and I know that in my own research, uh, this was a real sticking point in the negotiations, but the federal government basically forced provinces to accept uh, responsibility through basically a declaration that, uh, that uh, all residents, including registered Indians, would be eligible for Medicare services, both universal hospital coverage and universal... Medicare coverage. And what you're describing is that this was a part of an effort of assimilation uh, of integration um, and offloading by the federal government at that time. Is that correct? Mm
1: -hmm. And and when Indian Health Service moved to uh, start shutting down Indian hospitals, resistance to that closure emerged on all sides. First Nations Communities argued that if there's funds intended for their care, they should be spent on improvements to their hospitals and not have those funds given to community hospitals. And certainly, First Nations communities understood the the Indian hospitals' limitations, but the institutions themselves, especially the ones that were located near reserves, had become important community assets, providing needed wage labor, always at the least Uh, trained uh, and the poorest paid positions of janitors or maids. But First Nations employees also acted as interpreters and cultural brokers for children and elders in hospital, serving to blunt some of the coercion and paternalism in the hospital. And provincial health departments resisted Indian hospital closures. And community hospitals also resisted hospital closures, arguing that local hospitals should be reserved for themselves and that First Nations patients were you know, taking up beds that didn't belong to them. Some provincial health departments and communities deemed Aboriginal patients as, as a burden best cared for by the federal government. And and given those attitudes, you can imagine the reception that vulnerable First Nations patients might receive in in local hospitals. They had good reason to fear a return to Indian wards, Indian annexes, or basement wards. And especially in Treaty 6 areas, so that's Central Alberta and Saskatchewan, that included a promise of a medicine chest in Treaty 6, First Nations there viewed the Indian hospitals as the government concrete acknowledgement of a treaty right to health care. And, of course, that treaty right was contested at the time and it remains contested. But it was only through decades of resistance to government policies that the federal government finally accepted in 1979 its responsibility for health care for Indigenous people.
0: Now, Maureen, are there... Any policy lessons uh, that we can draw from this history?
1: That's a, a, a big question, and especially for a historian.
0: I know historians are often very reluctant, but if there's even just one policy lesson we might draw...
1: Well, 20th century healthcare history in Canada is kind of dominated by two prominent narratives. One, of course, is this celebrated story of the road to Medicare, you know from a hard-scrabble provincial plan to the definition of national health that embraced all Canadians that's one dominant narrative but there's nothing in that progressive story that can explain the other 20th century narrative of seemingly intractable health disparities in many though not all indigenous communities and i think by understanding uh, the history of indian hospitals we might try to understand how these two narratives are intimately linked how the isolation and segregation in Indian hospitals was central to the dominant project of modernizing health care for non-Indigenous Canadians. And so this more than a half century of contradictory and arbitrary policies that served the interest of non-Indigenous population left a destructive legacy in Indigenous communities and beyond. And health disparities are constructed. They're, They're not found, and they endure and they have come to be seen as somehow normal and inevitable. But I think by remembering Indian hospitals and racially segregated care, Canadians can begin to see how our privilege came at such a terrible cost.
0: Well, Maureen, thank you so much for this interview.
1: Well, thank you, Greg. It's my pleasure.
0: My guest today was Maureen Lux. We talked about her recent book, Separate Beds, A History of Indian Hospitals in Canada, 1920s to 1980s, Published by the University of Toronto Press in twenty sixteen. This interview was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Sumit Dami. Thank you all for joining us today.